Today's program was made possible by the generous prayer and support of the faithful friends and partners of this ministry. Visit our new website at Sheila.media. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this October 5th, 2018 edition. As I promised you a few days ago, I have a very powerful guest on today. He's quite an extraordinary young man. He's been invited on 100 Huntley Street and other Christian programs to talk about his very powerful testimony. And I think many young people are going to be so blessed by this. And I would really encourage people to share this with your youth because it's a powerful show. I met him recently. And again, I was so impressed by his testimony. I invited him to come and share it on the program. It is my pleasure to introduce just an incredible evangelist who hails out of Kelowna, BC, Canada. He's right in my neck of the woods. What an absolute privilege to have him on the program. I think God is really doing some amazing stuff in his life. Cody Bates, welcome to the program today. It is such an honor to have you on the show. It's so good to be on the show. I'm very excited. Um, just yeah, super excited to talk to you. And yeah, excited for other people to be encouraged by what God has done in my life. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Well, it's pretty cool, and you're a pretty cool guy. And I think you're going to really impact the youth across our globe, really. I think it's just, I was so moved by your testimony. So I'm going to hand you the mic, and you shoot it back to me when you're ready. Please do share your very powerful testimony with the folks. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, okay, so I guess I'll start at the beginning. You know, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. By the age of four years old, I called three different men in my life dad. Yeah, at a very early age, I just kind of got the idea in my head that loving someone was dangerous, and if you did it, you're going to get hurt. The only way I could really bond with my mom is by hating the guys that were coming in and out of my life. Um, so that relationship took a really sick turn as well. Uh, my mom started abusing me when I was really young. That kind of transitioned into different forms of delinquency. So uh, I think at about you know seven years old, I got put on Ritalin and Dexedrine to you know to kind of handle so they could adjust my behavior and then what happened there is because I was on these meds I wasn't able to be myself when I was at school and that created separation in between myself and my peers so when I was you know when I was at school I started getting bullied when I go home I was getting abused I didn't know God when I was young but I prayed every single day that I would disappear I was just absolutely crushed on the inside. I hated I hated every inch of myself. Um, and to try and get what little control I could get out of my life, um, I started killing animals when I was about nine years old. And I don't know what it was, but it was just the lack of control in my life and I just I just hated myself so much and I just I just I wanted something to pay for what was happening to me for how I felt about myself uh, and yeah so I was just very very demented very sick when I was very young at 12 years old I got my first joint out of my mom's cigarette pack I remember walking to school and smoking this joint and uh, my plan with this weed this, my plan with these drugs was I was going to be the cool kid on the playground for once. You know, people are going to know I was high and I was going to be sweet. People are going to think I was cool. And, uh, and I remember smoking this joint and I got way more than I bargained for because I didn't care what anybody thought of me. I didn't care who knew I was high or who didn't know I was high or who thought I was cool or what girls liked me. For the first time in my life, this melon that had grown in my gut was gone. And I decided in that moment that I was going to chase that for the rest of my life. 
and I did. You know, I started going to prison when I was around 15 years old, um, and that lasted for years. Uh, when I was in jail, I met guys in there that were gang members, and uh, these guys treated me good. I remember being in prison and just for the first time in my life actually connecting with people my own age and it was very perverse love but it was the first feeling of family I'd really ever had <laughs> and you know so for the first time since I was 12 I was sober and okay to be in my own skin so I thought I thought I found the answer I thought you know that I was just going to be you know with these guys in a gang and and just be good like that you know and when I got out of prison, everything that comes along with gang life followed me in getting out of prison. You know, I, I was getting involved in home invasions, robberies, kidnappings, all kinds of stuff. And I just, I just loved being around my friends. I loved being around the girls. I loved being around cocaine. Um, I just, I loved everything that I thought would make me happy. I chased. And then it all kind of came to a head on uh, June 6, 2006. Me and my friend murdered a rival gang member in a in a drug turf war homicide, and then I ended up getting charged with first degree murder a year and a half later. And I remember getting charged with when I got charged with homicide, uh, my heart just went black. Like I was I was 22 years old. I was looking at 25 years. I was looking at spending the rest of my life, in, you know, in a penitentiary, wow. and uh, and I just. You know, the, the, the amount of darkness that, you know, that swelled inside me and just swelled even bigger. And I just, I embraced the darkness is the best way I can put it. Um, everything I did, I was so angry at my life. I was so angry at everybody. And I just and I acted it out in acts of violence. Um, and I did the only thing that I knew how to do. And that's try and connect with, you know, with gang members. And, and, you know, and every time I went into a cell with someone, it was always coupled with a massive statement that I wanted to move up within the ranks of the gang. Within six months, I was the highest ranking member in that institution. We went to war with one of the largest prison gangs in Alberta. So it was a 24-7, you know, gladiator school and knife fight. And I, uh, at six months in, I was uh, the highest ranking member in the institution. And I found myself with a super max security classification. It was, uh, you know, belly shackle treatment. You go to, you know, it's, it's you're separated from everyone else. It's solitary confinement, administrative SAG, <laughs> special handling wow. unit. There's lots of names for it. But it was just, in a really perverse sense, I thought I'd arrived. I was sitting in a cell by myself. I was 23 hour lockdown, a super max. I was, you know, and I just, I, and that was, <laughs> I got everything I asked for and I was dying inside. I was sitting in there, just the melon in my gut was huge. I got convicted of manslaughter and sent to Edmonton Max Penitentiary. Uh, it was 150 inmates, just the worst, most vile, demonic human beings you'll ever meet. Um, the worst of the worst in Western Canada. Uh, and again, I just folded into what I thought would make me happy. And that's just hurting people and getting respect and trafficking drugs. And, and yeah, and I continued on for quite a while. I remember when I got released from prison, I was straight for a bit while I was on parole and I got into the car industry and I ended up selling 240 cars for my first year out of jail. And I was, uh, I was on top of the world. I was <laughs> making more money, you know, than I'd ever made, you know, legitly. And I was, yeah, I was looking at houses on the lake. I was driving a nice car. I was, you know, and, and the most misleading piece of advice I've ever gotten in my entire life was to keep picking up the lunch bail and going to work. I'm telling you about a year and a half after I got out of prison, I wanted to die 
every single day. There's just something missing, just this big void that melon in my gut came back and, and it got to a point where I, was, I couldn't rationalize why I wasn't doing drugs anymore. It was just, I had money. I had everything that, everything, everything that everyone said I would be, make me happy didn't satisfy me. It just didn't make sense to me that I was holding out on potential outlets to feel better. So I just, I got back into narcotic trafficking again. And, uh, and I started building a massive dial adult operation in South Calgary. Um, and when I did that, I would go to bars, parties, networking, everywhere I went, and I would build phones is what I would do. As soon as I had 100, met 120 people, I'd give them free cocaine and, and put them on phones. And once I had 120 people on a phone, I would just, I would hire two shift workers and they would work that phone. And then I would start another one and I would go out and meet people. And then once that phone had 120 people, it'd start another one and then another one and then another one and then another one. Thousands of customers with just lots of people working underneath me, aggressive, stiff arm tactics to take over the drug trade in South Calgary. I chased everything that I thought would make me happy. That was that was money, that was power, that was women, that was friends, and yeah, and I just and that's, most of all that was cocaine. As I dove further and further into that, it just didn't make me happy. I remember being at a point where my habit just progressed to a point where I started doing about $1,500 of cocaine a day. And I was only sleeping every six days. Uh, my health problems started getting out of control, but I was, I was making money whether I decided to tackle the day or not. It got to a point where, you know, I was, you know, I used to enjoy going to parties and having, you know, having fun and stuff. And I barely left my house. I would just sit there staring at my surveillance cameras for days on end. I would just sit there staring at these cameras, barely, barely ever leaving my house. My health problems got to a point where, you know, my liver was failing, my heart was failing, I had stomach ulcers, pancreatitis. I was dropping from heart attacks, overdosing. I had to be resuscitated three times by ambulance, EMS. Yeah. And I should have died over and over and over and over again. But for some reason, death wouldn't take me. I remember when I got told by doctors that I was going to die and that I didn't have long to live. I was relieved. I remember just thinking like it was finally going to be over soon. It was, you know, that, that melon in my gut would finally go away. I'd finally die. Um, I tried to kill myself multiple times and it just and like I put needles full of bleach, put it into my arm. Uh, I sat in a vehicle with an exhaust to going in. I just absolutely, I was so filled with anger and rage and pain and guilt and shame. I just hated every inch of myself and there was no way out of it. There was no way to ever get sober. There was no, I just didn't see any reason to living anymore. Um, I remember one day I had this, this girl come over to my house and she was showing me these paintings on her iPad and they're painted by a girl named Akiana Kramerik. And this girl, this a seven-year-old girl that Jesus taught to paint, and, that, and, and that's the claim anyway. But when I looked at these paintings, they were painted by a seven-year-old. They were like like Da Vinci's, <laughs> and like you know, they're just they're they're phenomenal. I could not deny that she didn't have divine help. She had to. It's the only way she could have done this. And one of her paintings is called The Prince of Peace. And it's a painting of Jesus. And I remember looking into his eyes. And like I said, I was only sleeping every six days. I was doing $1,500 of cocaine a day, shooting it, smoking it, and snorting it all at the same time. And I lived in psychosis because of that. Like I was constantly, my mind was split in half, um, be hardly able to tell reality from, from, the, from the spiritual realm, I would call it. I remember looking into the eyes of this Prince of Peace portrait. 
captured. And for some reason, the, the, like just an enormous amount of calm would come over me, even when I was out of my mind. And in that moment, I believed, like I'd never been to church, I'd never read the Bible, but I remember looking at this painting and believing that was God, that, that Jesus was God. But in order for me to have any kind of relationship with him, I would have to get sober. I would have to separate myself from my friends. I would have to quit selling drugs. Me, 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 me. Like it would have to be me to do absolutely everything. So, you know, and for so not for one second that I think that, that that he could do anything for me. I just thought it was cool that God was real, and I survived for about another five months after that. And it was just it was torture every single day. It was just torture. And uh, I remember January fourth, two thousand seventeen. I woke up that morning knowing that that was going to be the last day that I'd ever be living. I remember barely having the energy to go downstairs to get the knife to cut my wrist with. I remember getting a big butcher knife, walking back in my room, closing my door and sitting on my bed. And I, I had the conscious thought that that was going to be the last time that I was ever standing up. And, uh, and as I sit in there, just looking around my room and it was just, it was disgusting, just ravaged and crack pipes sitting around spoons, baking soda, lighters, beer cans, food, just garbage everywhere. And I just remember looking around the room and just knowing that I couldn't do this anymore. And, and I started cutting my wrists and I remember bleeding and I was thinking about my family and I remember I wasn't thinking about them to, to stop me, but because I hurt so much every time I thought of the people I loved, that the devil was just telling me that, that, that ultimate lie, that do this for them, do this for the people you love. They deserve that much from you. And I was doing it, and I got the knife, tip of the knife deep into my wrist. Uh, right as I was about to pull it back, all of a sudden, I started feeling things that I've never felt in my entire life. First... Like that melon, that melon that was in my gut for 31 years disappeared like that. I was like all the treachery, all the pain, all the shame, all the guilt, everything just fell off my shoulders in a split moment. And then all of a sudden I started feeling things I've never felt before. I started, but not just a little bit, but like bursting out of me, like, like joy, benevolence, peace, just warm feelings washing over me. And the words started repeating just, it's over. It's over. Your suffering's come to an end. And I have never been to church. I've never read the Bible, but I knew that Jesus Christ was talking to me in that room. And up to that point, <laughs> I was a convicted killer, gang member. I was a drug dealer. I was a diagnosed sociopath. And he left for 99 to come and save me. My addiction was gone. My shame, my guilt, everything that made me me for 31 years disappeared like that. And I remember getting off the floor and I, I put all my phones into a bucket of water. After I did that, I, I took all my jewelry off. I put that on the ground. When I walked out of that house, I didn't bring anything with me. I wanted nothing to do with that guy. I was just, and I had no problem doing it. I, walk, I walked out of that house just being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I ended up going to my dad's house. And I remember being at my dad's house and just my addiction was gone. But man, did I go through rough detox. And uh, like I hadn't come down in three years. Oh man, once the fog cleared, the wreckage I did to my brain was very prevalent. I'd be shivering and shaking under my covers at my dad's house. I could barely leave my room to go to the bathroom. I remember sitting under the covers, shaking, and my dad would come in my room 
and I'd feel, I'd just feel him put his hand on me, uh, on my shoulder. And then he'd leave again. You know, when I'd come out, there'd be a meal there. And it was like that for, for, for months. I just, I just, just, the pain I was having was just absolutely excruciating. I went, uh, went and see my family doctor. He's looking at me like I'm 125 pounds. I look like a corpse. And he's looking at my medical record and he's saying, you know, we're going to have to, we might have to put you in the emergency room to bring you down. So he sends me to the hospital and they send me back to him the next day. And I got to pick his job off the ground. He said, it's like the tested all my organs. He said, it's like my body's never touched a drug in its life. I didn't even test positive for narcotics. <laughs> I didn't come down for three years. Like my, yeah, you would think it's it would almost all be drugs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no, like everything was completely healed. And you know, I, but I got diagnosed with superimposed anxiety, depression, bipolar, PTSD, just a laundry list of things. Uh, mostly to do with my head. <laughs> And I remember being at my dad's place and I remember trying to figure out, I'm like, okay, I'm like, I know Jesus saved me, but I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Like, where do people go that love Jesus? <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, you know, they go to, they obviously go to church, you know, but don't, aren't there different denominations and stuff? Like, how do I know what church to go to? And, uh, and I remember I'm like, oh, wait, like, Akiana Kramerik. I'm like, what's she? You know, like Jesus taught her to paint. He clearly he didn't take her, you know, take her to the wrong church. And I and I Googled her, and she's a Christian. I'm like, okay, that means I'm a Christian. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, where do Christians go to church? I'm like, who else do I know that's a Christian? And it turns out my uncle's a Christian. I'm like, oh, I'm like, where does he go to church? <laughs> when he's in town, and uh, turns out he goes to the Black Diamond Gospel Chapel. So I go there, and I remember my first day in church. I come running in, come running to the front pew, front and center, and I'm holding my midsection, rocking back and forth like barely look like i'm barely able to breathe um just from how crazy i was <laughs> and uh pastor kind of stops and he's looking at me and uh, he's like you know stops what he's doing and he like keeps the service rolling though and uh and uh, at the end of the service i get up and i go running out and he, he runs after me and he chases me down and he puts the bible in my hands and I remember when he put that book in my hands, I knew that everything written in that book was as good as gold, that, that it says perfect. And I took it home and just shivering under my blankets, I started leafing through it. And as I'm reading through it, God really started talking to me through the words that leaped off the page to me. He also put it on my heart to start writing a book. You know, so I, I said yes, and with a with a laptop that was broken, with no battery, with a missing R key, and I got no typing skills whatsoever. I started finger pecking my way to victory, <laughs> shaking under my blanket. You know, read my Bible. You know, go back to typing, and yeah, and I started doing that. He put it on my heart. I said yes, and then you know, after as the weeks turned into months, um, I just winked on God harder and harder and harder. He just kept revealing himself to me. I remember, I remember, and I haven't told anybody about this, but I remember, I, uh, I, was, I don't know why, but I, I was always looking for faces in the clouds. Uh, and it was the weirdest thing because I would, uh, like my parents, I'd be driving with my parents and tell her, yelling at my dad to pull over thinking I'd seen something with my camera. Out. And, uh, and I don't know what it was, but I was always looking for faces. And I remember one day I get home and my dad comes up to me and this is after I almost crashed the vehicle trying to make them pull over <laughs> and my dad comes up to me he's like he's like I don't know why you know you're looking at faces but you're looking for faces but he's like I want to show you something and he brings me out onto the back deck and we're on a big acreage looking at the mountains and he points at the mountain that's closest to us and in the mountain there's a massive face and it's called Mount Head and it's the giant 
face of a lion. You can see the mane, the paw, you can see the, the nose and, and the eyes and, and the mouth and everything. And it's like clear as day. And that was God revealing himself to me. Like such in such excruciating pain that I just need a constant reassurance from God. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I had it any time to just get to the window and look outside. And, and that was just, God, that was just one of the ways that he revealed himself to me. And he kept doing things like that. Yeah, and as the months kind of progressed on, my pastors asked me if I wanted to get baptized. And I said, yes, yes, absolutely. I remember at my baptism. <laughs> it's the first time I shared my testimony. And uh, it was a pretty conservative church. And uh, <laughs> it was, uh, they were all uh, yeah, pretty surprised. It was my first time sharing, so I wasn't very good at it. So I felt like I needed people to understand how bad it was. So, <laughs> But uh, afterwards, it was, it was really good. So afterwards, an uh, old couple comes up to me and they uh, come up to me and they're like, you know what, like, today we chose to forego our usual church because our son is in our house. He's in the attic thinking the cops are raiding. He's on crystal meth and this is the only time that he's been sleeping. So we came to this church because it's closest to our house so we could get back before he wakes up. Wow. Uh, this is they're like, God, yeah. They're like, God brought us here to hear you. Can you talk to him? I said, yeah, yes, yes, of course, yeah. And that was, and yeah, the first, the day I got baptized, God put, you know, the first time he put someone in front of me. And I remember I met this guy and he knew exactly who I was. I was very notorious oh, that way. And uh, so he knew exactly what it was. And I remember he was in such a bad state, like in psychosis, that he, he thought his parents had hired me to kill him. <laughs> he knew who I was. Yeah, he's like a professional dude. If you get so, you know, and it's sad though because willingly walking off to his execution in his mind. But it's a, it's a, it, it paints a really clear picture of what what it's like for a drug addict. Like he, you know, he did that because he loves his family. But he's just, you know, but he's in addiction. There's so much pain that comes with it. I know it better than anybody. But he, anyways, he comes with me. Like he was crazy. Wanted me to meet his drug dealer. Just wouldn't stop talking about meth. And yeah, I invited. Him. So he comes to my house for a detox. And yeah, he's doing all that stuff. And I was struggling at first. I'm like, I'm like, I didn't know what to do. I was just knew that that's what God wanted me to do is bring him to my house. I'm like, what did I do with this guy? I remember one day I'm driving home with him and he brought up, he wanted me to meet his drug dealer. And I'm like, oh, and I got frustrated. And we got back to my house and I, and I got out of the car and I said, look, man, I'm like, like, you might need to go you know, die. You might, you know, you, you might need to do even worse than that. You might have to go and stay alive. What's worse than death for an addict is staying alive, you know, and having to come upstairs and look at your parents every single morning, knowing that you've been up all night doing drugs in the basement and then knowing that they know that shame, that guilt, you know what I mean? Just consuming you every single day. And, you know, you might have to go through that. And he started crying. And I remember he goes downstairs and I go upstairs and I'm sitting with my parents and I'm just, oh, I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I might have bit off more than I could chew with this, you know, and something came over me. And in an instant transforming moment, God gave me new eyes, I would say, to all of a sudden, all of a sudden I seen that guy the way Jesus sees him. All of a sudden, I was looking at him through that lens. I just got filled with just this crazy love. And I just, I got hyped up, right? And I'm telling my parents, I'm like, you know what? I'm like, let's go. We're not giving up on this guy. Like, let's get down there. And I we go walking down there. And I sit with my dad. And my dad and my mom and me, we all sit down and we just, we just hug him. And we just shower him with love. Even my dad. And it was so cool. And after about 15 minutes, my parents go back upstairs. Me and him go back. And we're standing there looking 
looking at the sky and the mountains and I'm telling him, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen with you, man. I'm like, but make, make this your stand, man. You're not, you're doing everything good, but you're not doing the one thing that I told you, you know, like the out of everything. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is why I'm sober. Jesus did all the work. I didn't get saved in a church. He came to me. He came to me while I was on the floor with a knife in my wrist. And I'm like, you have to invite Jesus in. And he, and he looks at me. It's the first time I'm seeing him. And just this light in his eyes. And he says, I just was. I was just praying that God to show me what love feels like. Darkness just turned to light in a split transforming moment for him. And I thought maybe I was special. Nope. <laughs> it was awesome. God wants all of his lost sheep. The chains, the chains were broken off that guy, just like me, just in a transforming moment, just like that. He surrendered, and God met him right on that bed while he was crying, right before me and my family came in. And the Spirit worked through me, and did God's timing just worked perfectly? And I knew He was showing me with Him that you know I'm like, okay, now I know that you know now I got to show everybody else how good this works, how good. Jesus works. And my pastors asked me if I wanted to go to Bible college. I knew that was God's lead, so I went to Bible college. And <laughs> again, they hadn't seen a lot of this around those. <laughs> around there. there were a bunch of prayer, homeschool prairie kids, you know, sitting with Cody Bates. And, <laughs> and but they're, they're amazing. You know, I grew so much while I was at Miller. Miller College of the Bible is amazing. And, uh, and I remember, but I remember God was showing me with my buddy that, that he wanted all his lost sheep. I'm like, how can I show everybody how good this works? How good Jesus works? And that's when I thought about going, I'm like, okay, where if people get saved, people most will grab the most attention from everybody else. Um, and, and East Hastings came to my heart. And I remember East Hastings, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's the, the poorest postal code in Canada, the highest rate of uh, drugs, crime, prostitution, and poverty uh, just ravages the downtown east side Vancouver. And the devil's just got a heavy grasp there. And uh, and I remember going, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Hastings. And, then, uh, and I knew God was leading my heart. I hadn't been home for Christmas in years but I knew that that's where God was asking me to go. So I said, yes, Sheila. <laughs> and, uh, and I went down there and I remember I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just standing on the corner of East Hastings in Maine with four, a box of 400 Bibles in my backpack. <laughs> Looking around and everybody's out of their minds, tents everywhere. And I'm like, what the heck? And I'm like, okay, okay, we could do this. We could do this. And I just, I just started walking. I really reeled in what I was capable of doing i remember like the months leading up to it i'm like okay i'm like if i save like 25 percent of hastings that'd be awesome <laughs> like, no <laughs> they uh you know what as human beings all we can do is plant seeds i can't save anybody it has to be god it's got to be jesus you know all i can do as a human being is plant seeds so that's what i did when i was down there i started planting seeds and i really thought about how can i get influence with these people like that's that's what you need once you got influence with somebody that's when you can get them into treatment or get them help. So how do you get influence with someone? How did how did Jesus get influence with us? And I really thought about it. And I'm like, okay, so Jesus was the greatest evangelist in the world. And when he came, stepped onto this planet 2,000 years ago, things got real personal real quick. And he, he washed the feet of his disciples. There's a big difference between empathy and compassion. Compassion's like if you're walking by someone on the street and you give them a sandwich and you say, I hope you get off the street and, you know, I'll be praying for you. Like, that's compassion. Empathy's different. Empathy requires us 
to sit down with that person, to put their shoes on, to live it with them, to feel it with them. And when we exhibit that level of sacrifice, it opens up a new dimension for relationship and connection because it's an expression of unconditional love. When I was down on Hastings, everyone there knew that I had other places I could be. (laughs) But I was there with them on Christmas. And you know what? And it just opened up this crazy dimension of relationship and connection. I connected with so many people down there. The first guy I talked to was the guy that I ended up bringing out of there with me. A week before I got there, he had his face in the mud in Pigeon Park asking God to help him. And a week later, I come walking by with a box of Bibles. You know, I start talking with this guy. And this guy's my best friend in the world today. I work out with him every day. Uh, His name's Carl. He lives in Kelowna. Now, um, now, Carl is the guy, by the way, you got to tell the little story of the Bowie, the Bowie knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was walking by, yeah, when I was, uh, he's the first person I talked to. And uh, I'm walking by him, and he's got this big knife in his hand. He's hacking away at a piece of wood, a big Bowie knife. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know what it was. So I'm like walking by him, and it's like 10 at night, and it's Hastings. I'm looking at him, I'm like, this guy will do it. <laughs> like, I don't know what it was. It was the way he looked at me. He, he'd be open to talk, and I just started talking with him. And him and I go walking into this. Uh, he takes me to the a skate park down there, which is like really dark and like secluded away from everything. Down on East Hastings, it was freaky. <laughs> and uh, I was like walking with him, like, yeah, I did time for homicide, just letting you know. <laughs> like, I got, a, I got a big knife. <laughs> like, yeah, like, but we just, yeah, we sat down and I just, I shared my testimony with him. I, I, I bought him some food I, and he didn't, and it's funny, he's like, he's like, why are you doing this? He's like, I'm not gay. I'm like, no, I don't know what it is. <laughs> gave his life to Christ while, while I'm sitting there with him. Wow. And, uh, and he's the guy that I brought out of there. And I ended up, I ended up talking to like six or 700 people over a 10 day span where it's just pounding pavement, sitting with guys. I got creative, man. Like there was one guy, I'm like, I'll buy you a tent if you have a Bible study in it with me. (laughs) And then like, yeah. And I just did different things just to try and gain influence with people. And that's, and that's what I did. And it was, and it was very profound. It's very impactful. It was the most profound 10 days of my life. Um, it was awesome. After that, just all these doors opened up. Like, just like, that's how the Huntley interview came. Um, I was on the front page of the Calgary Herald. Glory to God in front page secular news. They're talking about Jesus and the Bible. And like, every person I've ever talked to is like, I've never seen that anywhere. And, and yeah, and because of that article, I got invited on Hunter Huntley Street and another show called This Is Your Story. I got uh, connections to get my book published. That I got that from from the from the article like because i said yes to hastings because i was obedient to that call so many blessings just came from just saying yes to hastings i work with teen challenge in the okanagan it's crazy i was getting asked to speak everywhere and i went to i was going to different places and and lots of places was trying to get me to work with them and I kept rejecting all the offers and stuff because it was just wasn't it wasn't Jesus, you know. It was twelve steps, or it was you know. But I I wanted to talk about Jesus. I wanted to talk about the truth. I want to talk about the gospel. That's me, man. And yes. uh, and I don't care about money anymore. I'm not. I lost my passion for money. I just want to share the good news with people. And where can I do that? And Teen Challenge asked me if I come and speak there. And I go there, 
and then they give me a tour around the play of the property. They show me the curriculum they do, like uh, everything. And I begged Teen Challenge. I mean, I'm like, please, you guys have to let me in on this. Like, they're just like they're they are drinking out of a fire hydrant of truth. The yeah. Teen Challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's all Jesus, man. And so, yeah, so the Okanagan Men's Center hired me on, and and they hired me because I'm an evangelist. So I assemble teams now. So I'm doing a street ministry, and I called it Every Life Counts. Yeah, so we all go into Kelowna every Thursday night at six o'clock in front of the Gospel Mission, and we just love on the community down there. And yeah, and I just I assemble teams, and I teach everybody how to be the hands and feet of Jesus, man. Uh, evangelism was the catalyst to my spiritual life and my spiritual growth. I loved Bible college, but I was going insane in Bible college. That's half the reason I went to Hastings. <laughs> I, needed, I needed action, man. I needed to get into that. And, uh, and you know what? It's, it's, and I'm so excited to see where God is growing Teen Challenge. I'm so excited to see where God is growing me. And, and I just I just try to keep being obedient. I try and just stay as humble as possible and just keep making it about Him because I'm not standing here because of anything I did. It was all Jesus. Just such an incredible story. And I think that is so profound what you just said. I am not standing here anything to do with me. It's all Jesus. That is really, it's such a profound story. And it's just, it's amazing what Jesus can do. And I think that's really where the passion for evangelism comes in with you, Cody, because, you know, you can't not talk about what Jesus did in your life because it is such no. a thing. <laughs> so it's really yeah, exciting. No. I mean, what God is doing with your life now, the calling that you have and, and just taking you places. I mean, and by the way, just so folks know, East Hastings, I mean, this place is not many people go to East Hastings. I mean, it's like you totally downplay it. But this place is like it makes the ghetto look like Wall Street. I mean, it is really. Yeah. Just, no, it's yeah. It's a you know what? The devil really has his grips on Hastings. Yeah, but you know what? Like this year for the second annual Christmas on Hastings Project. So I'm going back. Oh. Guess what? Carl's coming with me. <laughs> and so, you know, this, it comes to, you know, everything. God's bringing this to full circle, man. Carl's going back to the streets that he came from. I'm partnering with the Carroll Street Gospel Mission Street Chapel down yeah, there. Yeah. And uh, they're letting me use their church for 10 days. Um, wow. So I'm going to be putting on events down there. Uh, I'm going to be bringing in barbers to cut hair, get everybody looking good, feeling good, you know, for job interviews, Christmas. Uh, there's going to be music planned. There's going to be, we're going to be feeding people. I'm handing out posters to different businesses to get clothing donations. Wow. Um, yeah. You know what? Last year I was going down there by myself to bring attention to it. So that way this year I could go down with plugs and resources to pull people out of there and make a larger scale impact this year. So that's the plan. Carl's coming with me. And yeah, man, we're just going to go and just be the hands and feet of Jesus for 10 days and it's it's going to be awesome. Wow, it sounds like it is going to be awesome. I'm just so excited for what God is doing in your life, Cody, because your testimony, again, it is just remarkable. There is people that are suffering from such demonic affliction through drugs. Drugs have an incredible grip on many people. They are just absolutely afflicted with this torment, the pain, the agony, wanting to die, trying to die. You're certainly no stranger to that. Such a powerful testimony. 
testimony of someone who overcame all that by nothing more than the grace of Jesus Christ. The power of God is certainly evident in your life. Now, Cody, in the waning moments, for folks that want to invite you to speak at their church or invite you to talk to their youth, I want you to give out your information, your website, and talk a little bit about this exciting book that's coming out at the end of the year. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the easiest way would go to my website, CodyBates.com. I'm also on social media under Cody Bates. You can follow me there. Instagram, Cody Bates. You can follow me there. (laughs) And yeah, the book that's coming out on December 15th called The Devil's Pupil, A True Story of Redemption. Uh, I want Christians to be encouraged from it, but Mark 2.17 says, it's not the health you need a doctor, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's where God has really put my heart. My heart beats for the lost. That's the heart God gave me. So my book is really meant to penetrate into the secular world. God was showing me when I was on the front page of the Calgary Herald, you know, glory to God and front page news. God was showing me with that, that he wants to use my story to really impact, you know, a lost world. I'm hoping, you know, people are going to read my story. They want to know what happened. You know, I was in jail for homicide. I was on a very dangerous prison. I was a big drug dealer, this and that. And then at the end of the book, they're going to be receiving the message of Christ. And then we'll be talking about evangelism, what I'm doing now. And then at the end of the book, uh, there will be a prayer for people to give their life to Christ wow. and, and different ways they could plug in and different resources. And yeah. And you know what? And honestly, I, uh, Sheila, I try and talk to every single person that messages me. Uh, John 3.30, we must decrease so he can increase. So I just, I really want to, I know God wants all of his lost sheep. So if there's anything I can do uh, to help people, I'll be, I'll be doing it. Amen. Well, Cody, thank you so much for taking your time out of your really busy schedule to come on the program to share your incredibly impactful story. The book, folks, be watching for that in December. Just such a powerful testimony. Of course, he didn't get into all of it, but it is just so incredible. I had the privilege of meeting Cody, spending some time with him. His personality is just infectious. Boy, the love of God just pours out of him. You can see, even with his laugh, I think he's got like an anointed laugh, literally. He's just so full of joy and love for people. Cody, I was just so impressed with you sharing with the youth and and how they respond to you is so powerful. You're just a light for Jesus Christ in a really dark world, especially what is going on with our youth in this time we live. I want to thank you for your ministry and I want to thank you so much, Cody, for coming on the program today. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I just, I just really, yeah, it's, you know, I just hope that everyone's just super encouraged. Um, If I could say one more thing for people that have loved ones that are in addiction, I know there's going to be lots listening to this. Don't stop praying. God's timing is still working perfectly for them. You have to have trust in that. You have to have faith. I didn't get saved in a church or at an altar. I got saved with a knife in my wrist on my bedroom floor when I didn't even know who Jesus was. So keep praying. God gave us power in our words. Just have comfort, rejoice that his timing is still working perfectly for absolutely everybody. So just keep praying for them and don't give up because God is big. (laughs) Yeah, we do serve a big God, don't we? 
Yeah, we certainly do. <laughs> the biggest. <laughs> I just love this guy's laugh. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Cody. What an absolute blessing. I've also got Cody's information linked below in the description. Do reach out to him and let him know you heard him on the program today. Thank you very much again, Cody. God bless you. Thank you so much, Sheila. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again. And, and yeah, God bless you so much. Thanks, Cody. Folks, that was Cody Bates, C-O-D-Y-B-A-T-E-S dot com. His information, like I said, is linked in the description below. Reach out to Cody. And if you're a if you're a minister, reach out to Cody and invite him to speak to your youth groups. If you have any type of ministry that deal with young men, do reach out to Cody, and I'm sure he would love to come and speak to your youth. He's a very impactful young man. We'll certainly be keeping our eye out for him. And speaking of awesome, young, powerful men, there's another fella that I met, and I got to tell you something. Boy, oh boy, what a talent. And wow, is God ever using this fella too? It's remarkable. His name is Fresh IE, and I'm going to be uploading that show that I did with him, a remarkable First Nations fellow that God is using in a powerful way. He's a Canadian First Nations, and he was nominated for a Grammy. And what a powerful testimony as well. So be watching for that over the weekend. Make sure you are subscribed to my YouTube channel. All the information, even on how you can get the book, Power Prayers, Warfare That Works, and It Works. This is an arsenal that you need to get. Cody mentioned prayer. Don't give up on these folks that are in bondage right now. Yeah, they might be bound up, but guess what? God works through the prayers of his people. So get that book, Power Prayers, and do follow me on social media and subscribe to my YouTube channel. All that information is simply on the front page there at www.sheila.media. Be watching for that interview with Fresh IE. Very powerful stuff. Thanks so much for tuning into the broadcast. We'll see you real soon. Good night and God bless.